Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. take a minute and and think, what is it that you believe? What is it that you believe about God? What is it that you believe about Jesus Christ? What what is it that you believe about the Holy Spirit? What what is it that you believe uh, about the church? You know, when you lay in bed at night and you cannot seem to sleep, what is it that keeps you awake? What are those questions that you begin to ask yourself? Why on earth am I here? What is the purpose of my life? That's really what this next series is all about, is for us to spend some time talking about what are the fundamentals of our faith? What are the things that you and I can stand on? What I recognize is that each of us is in a different place in our faith journey. And so some of you may be at a certain place where you're here, and some of you may be in a place where you're here. And for you to be able to critically think and to ask the questions, to say, what is it that I believe I think it's also important for us as a church to continually come back to asking, well, what is it that we believe? What is it that we are all about? What are the things that we hold to? Because here's what we know is that it is so easy for us to be able to drift. It's so easy for churches to be able to drift. And so for us just to be able to say, Lord, what are the foundations upon which I want to stand? What are the foundations upon which I want to build my life? Because here's the truth. We are all building our lives on something. A a desire, a belief, a, a dream, a habit. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus talks about foundations so often, right? He talks about things like, are you going to build your life on sand or are you going to build your life on the rock? Because here's what we know is that when the seasons of storm come into our lives, upon what are you and I going to be able to stand that will be firm in those seasons of storm? talks about things like soil and knowing that the foundation upon which you build your life, the soil upon which you will plant your life into, what does he say? That good soil is going to produce good fruit and bad soil is going to produce bad fruit. And all of these things point us to this idea of building our lives on something firm knowing that when those seasons of storm come, that we will have a place upon which we can stand. And that's really what this new series is all about, giving you an opportunity to think about what am I building my life upon. When you and your spouse are arguing, 
and you feel like you are headed for divorce, when the phone call comes and you hear that it's cancer, or you hear that you have some disease that you're battling against, when you find out that you have some sort of heart condition, when you're dealing with children that just seem to be so wayward and you're struggling, when you feel like you're losing your job, when you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from, when a loved one dies, what are you going to stand on? What's going to keep you moving forward in life? Where do you go? So often I find myself saying, and maybe you find yourself saying, I don't know where people go who don't have faith. Because there have been so many times in life where you feel like you are just being rocked. And in those moments, where do you stand? And I know if I try to stand on my own and in my own strength and in my own power, I don't even know how I would get through life, but to know that I can stand on something firm. By the way, the foundation that you choose to stand on also serves as a witness to the entire world. You know, that people look at you and they look at what you stand upon, that foundation, and they see whatever it is that you stand on, and that's how they begin to say, well, whatever that is, that's what I want for myself. Now, to help us with this, right? What, what is it that we stand on? Where do we go? We're going to spend the next couple of, of weeks together talking about some of these foundational truths we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about the Apostles' Creed and then spending some time talking about, well, how do we fill that through or live that out as we talk about Reformation. And we're going to spend a, we're going to spend a week looking at the Lord's Prayer. And so just trying to look at some very fundamental kind of foundational things for us as a people and for us together as a church. And so this morning when we pick up, we're going to be looking at the idea of looking at the Apostles' Creed itself. And I know some of you probably think, well, wait a second, why, why is it important that I, I learn or talk about a, a creed that's a, a couple of thousands of years old? What's the purpose of all of this? And I want us to know that all of us, we're saying, are building our lives on something. Uh, the word creed comes from the word credo, which literally means I believe. It's a belief statement. And so you believe something. We would say that the church believes something. And what we would say is that the Apostles' Creed is really just a, a representation of what it is that we believe together as a church. Now, I want to give you a little history lesson as we kind of dive in this morning. There's an old legend that says that on the day of Pentecost, that when the Holy Spirit fell, you had the apostles together, and each one of them offered a line to the Apostles' Creed. There's basically 12 different thoughts, and so each one came up with a thought. But there's, there's really no historical evidence to that. There's no scriptural evidence for that. So we wouldn't say that that is certainly something that we could stand upon. But here's what we know, is that the Apostles' Creed was first referenced by Ambrose in 390 A.D., 
But this goes back to something that existed even earlier. It's something that was in use already by 150 AD. So less than 100 years after the disciples had passed, you had this statement of faith that was being used. And oftentimes they would use it in the early church as a way of a kind of a baptismal questionnaire. So as people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they would ask them, well, do you believe in God the Father? Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ that he's the Son and our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the church? Do you believe in the resurrection of the flesh? And the people would all respond, well, yes. And so it was kind of this uh, earliest statement that people would kind of compare themselves to. Now, in the years that were following, they added some other things to deal with some of the historical questions that were coming up, some of the controversies that had arisen in the day. And so this, until we arrive at what we have for today. Now, I want to be clear because it seems kind of funny for me after coming off of a series on uh, the book of Ephesians where we've spent just every week kind of working our way through that we're going to spend some time looking at the Apostles' Creed and working our way through that. It feels kind of funny to me as a pastor, but here's what I want us to understand, is that the Apostles' Creed does not take the place of Scripture. All it is is a, a condensing of what Scripture already teaches where it becomes kind of a touchstone and a foundation upon which we can stand. Rather, the Apostles' Creed is really all about the very nature and the very character of God. Think about it. When I asked you before, when life comes crashing down and you wonder, how am I going to make it through the next day? Where am I going to go? What is it that I believe? I believe. And God the Father Almighty, who is the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You can say amen to that, because where do we go on what do we stand? We stand on truths like that. Now, why? Why is it important that you and I stay grounded on something like this? I want to share with you a story. I've shared it with some before, and I know that in our new members class, I've shared this story. It's one that I will probably share over and over again about why something like this is important. When we were serving at our church up in Pennsylvania, uh, the other pastor there had a family. And the family member, his wife's family, grew up in Long Island. They were a part of a church that was there. And it was this Lutheran church. They had been going there for years. Well, at one point along the way, the pastor says, well, you know what? I think we should start to study the Jewishness of Jesus. Okay, 
Sounds pretty good. Yeah, Jesus was Jewish, so why don't we study the Jewishness of Jesus? And so they do. Well, time goes by, and the pastor begins to say, hey, I think we should follow the feasts and the festivals of the Jewish people. So like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Purim and all of these things. And the church starts to say, well, okay. And so now they start following some of the Jewish feasts and festivals. Time goes by. The pastor says, we are going to reject Jesus and become a Jewish synagogue. Now, at that point, this pastor's family got out of there. They were like, whoa, this is crazy. We're getting out of here. But one of the family members stayed behind, and he converted to Judaism. And I always say this, you know it's serious when you let someone, he was ritually circumcised. So you're going to let somebody cut you, right? That's pretty serious. Now, why do I say all this? It's because at any point along the way, the elders of that church should have been saying, wait a second, this is not what the church has taught from the very beginning. This is not what we believe. Warning. But what happens? No, they allowed this drift to take place. So why is something like the Apostles' Creed important? It's because it holds us together on something firm. If at any point you were to hear Pastor Andrew or myself saying, well, Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. He really wasn't fully God or he really wasn't fully man. Jesus never really rose from the dead. Hopefully the elders of the church would step up and say, whoa, wait a second, this is not certainly what Scripture teaches, and it's not what the church has taught from the very beginning. This is why it's important for us to understand on what are we building our faith? What is our foundation? See, knowing this, will keep you from drifting into error. It will also keep us from drinking the Kool-Aid of anybody who wants to lead us astray. You know, you may know friends and neighbors who are Mormon or who are Jehovah's Witnesses or who are Christian scientists. Lovely people. Maybe they're very nice and they claim to be Christians. But they're not because they deny the Trinity. They deny some of the things that are written in the Apostles' Creed that Scripture tells us about. And so that's why you and I need to build on these things. So the question is, what do we believe? We live in a society where people will say things like, well, all truth is really relative, right? There are no absolute truths. Well, we ask, well, is that absolutely true, right? Do you believe that? What is it upon which we can stand? And so what is it that we believe? First, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. The Apostles' Creed opens up with one of the most profound statements that God is the Almighty One and that He alone is the maker of heaven and earth. Amidst all of the things that call us to worship them, God says, I made it all 
and I alone am to be worshipped and praised. There's many people we know who deny that God even exists. But this is what we believe, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created human life. He created everything. From Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, it is all about God's creation. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 40 says in verses 25 to 28. We're going to be spending time in both Isaiah this morning as well as Colossians. So listen to what he says. He says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. There's a cute little story that's told of uh, an atheist who is walking through the woods. And uh, obviously because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe that uh, God created any of this, but he's still in awe and wonder of this, this stream that's running through the woods and everything that seems to be in bloom, and it's beautiful. And so he's making his way through the woods when suddenly he notices this bear. And this bear is barreling down on him. And so he is so scared that he turns around and he starts running. But as he looks over his shoulder, he sees that the bear is slowly making ground on him. And so he's thinking to himself, God, I have never believed in you. I have never believed that you are real. But God, right now, if you stop this bear in his tracks and make him a Christian, I promise I, <laughs> I will believe. And in that moment, the wind stopped blowing through the trees. The stream stopped moving through the woods. And the bear stopped in its tracks, knelt down, and prayed out loud. Lord, please bless this food I'm about to eat. (laughs) You know... (laughs) But in all seriousness, you know, you look around and we wonder, where did everything come from if it didn't come from God? How, how do you get everything out of nothing? I mean, even scientists would say that you can't get something out of nothing, that, you know, everything that is created has a creator. And then they'll say, except in this one instance where everything just happened to come into being. And so, you know, the question is, well, what exploded if there was no air, no gas, no liquid, no what? What is it? What we believe is that it's God who spoke everything into existence. Everything that we see around us in creation 
whether it happened in an instant or whether it happened in seven literal 24-hour days, the point isn't to debate how it came about because we know how it came about, that in the end, it is God who spoke it into existence. God created the heavens and the earth. Beloved people, what's so cool is to think that you and I have designer genes at the heart of who we are. I mean, if you think about it, even scientifically, from the forces of gravity to the weak and the strong nuclear forces, like if any of these things were like a fraction of an inch or a fraction off, like everything would just collapse right back on itself or expand too quickly. I mean, everything has been so intricately designed for you and for me. Now, the deeper question isn't necessarily the how, but it's the why. Right? Like, well, why did everything come to be? And the reason why it's important is how often did we see, even in videos like that that we saw in the introduction, for people who don't believe in the why things came to be, life is kind of pointless and it's kind of meaningless. Where do I get purpose for my life? If it's all just a, a random chance of molecules coming together? No. What we believe is that God made everything as an expression of who he is for his glory and so that he could be in relationship with us. I think this is what's so cool. You know, when we look at creation as just an overflow of the expression of God, we, we, get, a, we get a sense of his power in his majesty. You know, if, if you came to my house and you spent just a few minutes looking around, you know, you'd know instantly about our family. You know that I, I'm married and I have four kids. You, you'd know that, oh, he likes planes or he likes, you know, he likes woodworking. I mean, you would just spend a few minutes, you'd find, oh, he's a pastor. You, all of these things just by spending time, just a few moments within our house. It's the same thing when we look around at creation. It's just an expression of who God is. We see his love and his care and his concern for us. And I know we could spend so much more time on this, but the heart of what I want us to remember this morning is that God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice, second, it says, we believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, and our Lord, that Jesus is God's Son and our Lord. Now, when we say this, we're not saying that he is a son or that he is similar to God. We are saying that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, the one and only, and there can never be another like him. To call Jesus God's only Son literally is to say He is God the Son. He's 100% God. Now, I know it, it gets hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around this, our, 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 fail, our frail human minds, but to understand this is one of the great mysteries of the faith. In fact, in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was developed, and here's what it says. And, and, in, and in one Lord, it's about Jesus Christ, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, 
the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. Now, again, where do we get this from? Well, it comes from Scripture. And so if you've got your Bibles handy, notice what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. It says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Where do you think that the Council of Nicaea got that idea? Well, we see it here in Scripture. Jesus Christ is God the Son, and he was present at the time of creation. But more than just being present, he was actively involved because the Bible tells us that all things were created by him and through him. And because of that, Jesus Christ is worthy of the same adoration, the same praise that we would give to God the Father. Now, here's where it gets more personal because it says what? That he is God's Son and our Lord. Ah, you feel the tension because now it's not just making a statement, but it's saying a belief. It's to say that I believe that Jesus is my Lord. And think about all of the things in the world that want us to make it or them our Lord. So often we, we treat Jesus like he is an insurance policy. Right? We, um, we, we click the like button on Jesus. Um, when Google had the plus one, right? It was like, we plus one Jesus. You know? Instead of saying, no, wait a second. It's not like, oh, I'm going to add Jesus to my life. Jesus becomes your life. That's the thing that you're saying when you're saying that he is my Lord. It means everything you do, everything you have, you do not possess. It is not yours. You're saying, Lord, it all belongs to you. And so the question you really have to ask yourself, like they would ask those baptismal candidates, is, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Have you simply added Jesus to your list or has he become your list? Because here's the thing, following after Jesus isn't about gaining control of something. It's actually about losing control. It's about giving your life over and saying, I cannot do this on my own. I need to stop trying to be the Lord of my life and let Jesus be the Lord of my life. Now, the third part, the third statement says, we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
A number of years ago, um, Larry King was asked, if you could interview anybody in history, who would you want to interview? And he said, Jesus. And the question is, well, what would you want to ask Jesus? And his response was this, I would like to know if he was virgin born. Because if he was, it would change everything for me. To think about the key to, to Jesus, not only being of God, right? Not only being God to have the power and all the miracles. He's saying if he was truly virgin born, then he wouldn't just be like me. I, I kn would know that he's got to be of God. This is the reason why he could do all of these incredible things. It's the key to his miracles. It's the key to his resurrection. Now, here's actually the amazing thing is that church historians know there was really never a time when the church didn't believe that Jesus was virgin born. It's always been a part of the gospel story. From the very earliest to just a couple of decades after Christ's life, people were saying that Jesus' birth was miraculous. In fact, the Ebionites in 100 AD said that they don't believe that he was virgin born, which just simply means if they're denying something, it was something that was already being taught. It was something that was already being believed. And really, the belief just comes out of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what all these Old Testament authors have said. Listen to what Isaiah 7.14 says. The Lord, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, why is this important? It's because if Jesus was born in the same way as everyone else, instead of being born of a virgin, then there would be nothing special about him. He'd be exactly the same as you and me. Wouldn't really be any different than any other historical figure that you see out there. And he wouldn't fit the description of, of, of a child being born to a virgin that we just read about. Jesus is 100% God. Now, let's continue on. So we've read verses 15 to 17 from Colossians. What does it say in verses 18 to 19? It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus wasn't just simply born to Mary and Joseph and then adopted by God, right? He is God. Now, why is it important that he is 100% God? It's because only God could overcome the depth of our sin and our brokenness and the distance that that sin and brokenness created between us and God. In addition, it reminds us that nothing that is broken or sinful is allowed in God's presence. So only God could remove that brokenness and only God could have the power over death. Now, why is it important that he is also 100% human? 
It's because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, making him fully God, but because he was born of a virgin, making him fully human, not only did he have the power over sin and death, but he's the only one who could take our place and take the penalty that our sin and brokenness deserve, which is separation from God. It's a mystery that we will never fully be able to understand, but listen to what Colossians 1.20 says. Let's continue. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, which was shed on the cross. His being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin makes him the only one who is able to do what we could not do for ourselves. He's the only one who could be God's son and our brother and our friend and our savior. That's really what the next piece of the creed talks about. It says, if we believe that he suffered, crucified, died, and descended. Right? Suffered, crucified, died, and descended. Now, if we thought it may be difficult before, this is where it starts to get even more personal. Because what it means is that Jesus suffered because we should have suffered. The punishment that we deserve is to be forever separated, eternally separated from God because of our sin and brokenness, the lies we've told, the cheating that we've done, the hurtful things, the slanderous things that we say or believe about other people. All of these things should keep us and do keep us from entering into the presence of an almighty and holy God. Jesus took what we deserve, and he took that upon himself. He's brought before Pilate and accused of things that even Pilate himself knows he didn't do. Has him beaten and scourged and flogged, and, and even that wasn't enough. And so when given the opportunity to choose between Barabbas or Jesus, the people say, no, give us Barabbas and have Jesus crucified. And, and you know what a brutal and painful experience Jesus went through. And all of this eventually led to Jesus being separated from God. Imagine this person being in perfect unity with God, and then all of a sudden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I share this? It's because if you and I stand before the judge, the judge looks at us and says, you know what, I'm sorry, there's nothing, there's nothing unholy that's allowed in, in my presence, and your sin and your brokenness should keep you from entering into what I have for you. And, and let's say it's, it's my wife, or let's say it's my children, or let's say it's Pastor Andrew who says, you know what, you know what, I'll go in his place. Send me, send me away instead and, and let Aaron go free. And, and what God says is no, because guess what? As good as you may think you are, you are still broken and sinful. But Jesus, the only perfect one to have ever lived, says, but take me instead. And God says yes. 
Jesus took on himself what we deserve. And ultimately, what do we deserve? We deserve death and separation from God. Now, notice, the creed says that he descended into hell. It's probably important for us to, to be clear about this. The Bible actually never says that Jesus descended to hell. It says he descended to the dead. He preached to the spirits who were dead. Right? In the Old Testament, it's Sheol. In the New Testament, it's Hades, which we often think of as hell. But really, hell is the Gehenna. It's the outside of the city. And, and Hebrews 11.13 makes a reference to this about Jesus dying outside of the city. And there he takes on our punishment. And that's why sometimes you'll see inversions that'll say he descended into hell. Or you'll see it say that he descended to the dead. But no matter what we say, what we understand is ultimately what we deserve is to be forever separated from God. And this is what Jesus took upon himself. He would have had to take on all that we deserve, that separation, that pain, forever being apart from God. Now, what is hell? We think of it as a lake of fire. We think of it as the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. We think of it as sulfur. Most of us think of hell as like Dante's Inferno, right? That's what we think of. But I want us to think about it maybe in a slightly different way. I, I, think, about, um, I think about the incredible blessings in my own life, right? Uh, I think about my, my family and my children. I think about the number of times I should have been killed in car accidents. I mean, seriously. Or the number of times working for my dad, I'll explain this story another day, when I hit an electrical main, <laughs> or I hit a gas main, both true. Um, I, 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 when I dove into a pool, cracked open my head. I mean, I think about how God did, God spared me from what could have been so much worse. Now, imagine, imagine if God removed his presence from our lives and from, the, and from the world. I mean, we think the world is pretty messed up right now, and it is. But imagine if God removed his presence completely. I mean, you ought to talk about, I mean, the things people would say and do to each other where there's, there's no laws, there's no morality, there's nothing. I mean, the world, I think, would literally be set on fire. And to think that this is what Jesus saved us from. That's why I'm so, I'm so grateful for the promises that we have in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 5, this is what it says. It says, Surely... He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Beloved people, those words were written 700 years 
before Jesus was even born. To think that it would explain all of these things that were to come that were only fulfilled in Jesus. I love the way in which author and theologian Michael Horton says this, His, being Jesus' hell, gained our heaven. His curse secured our blessing. His incalculable grief brought our imaginable joy. Father, people, my prayer for us this morning is that we would know the incredible, immeasurable joy that comes in knowing Jesus. And I pray that you and I may come to know deeper these foundational truths upon which we stand. In so many ways, it's, it's difficult because I, it's kind of a, an apologetics 101 type of message. And yet I think so often it's good for us to be reminded of what is it that we believe? And upon what am I going to build my life? And where am I going to stand? That's why it's hard, because you have a message with a lot of ideas and information, but not necessarily a lot of application. So what's the application? How do I take this into my life? It's really to ask, what's your foundation? What do you want to build your life upon? Because remember, if what we build our life upon is also a witness to the world, the way in which you and I build our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ will determine how you live that foundationally out in the world, how you are living a life that produces good fruit. So it's hard. It's hard for me to end in a place where we've talked about the designer genes that we have to ending in a place of saying Satan's schemes. To think that we end in a place where Jesus has died and descended. But here's the good news. You've got to come back next week. Because next week, we get to hear about the fact that Jesus Christ has now become the life of the party. And so he crashes Satan's party and has become the life of the party. And so that's where we want to rest today, is to be able to say, what is it that I believe? What do I believe about my faith? What do I believe about Jesus Christ? And where do I find the answers? And what I pray we know is that we find the answers in Jesus. Would you pray? Lord, I come before you this morning. And Lord, one of the things we recognize is we certainly want to be open that if there would be anyone here who has never said something like the Apostles' Creed and truly believed that in their hearts, that this would be the moment when they say that Jesus Christ is God's Son and not just our Lord, but to be able to say He is my Lord. Lord, I'm not in control of my life anymore. I want you to be in control, you to have absolute sway. And for those who this morning may hear a message like this 
and who may have it just kind of go in one ear and out the other because they, they feel like they've heard it so many times before. But Lord, maybe this morning is the morning when they say, but you know what? I've never really lived this way. I've never really built my life on the foundational truths that I know it should be built on. And so maybe today is the day when they're saying, Lord Jesus, I've tried to hold on to the reins, but I know there's an area of my life that I need to give over to you. Maybe a sin, maybe it's a pattern, maybe it's a behavior. That, Lord, we would say that there's nothing that we are withholding, but that we give it all to you. Lord, this morning what we pray is that as we stand on the foundations that you have told us, the foundations of Jesus, that, Lord, what we may do is that we may share that hope, share the gospel with everyone we meet. And we know, Lord, that it is all and only for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.